Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. Here as usual to to help you. If you have questions, we're here to answer your questions. Questions that that involve problems, difficulties you may be having in your practice in your life. If you have questions at any time, just post them in the chat. We'll spend a few minutes collecting questions as they come in. Fifteen minutes after the hour, I will begin to answer them. Chris is here, as usual, to ask them. Edit is here to help out. First fifteen minutes, if, once you've asked your questions, if you have no questions, just spend the first 15 minutes in meditation, and I will be back at 15 minutes after the hour.
All right, hello, welcome back. I think we're live, having some technical difficulties. Should be no big surprise. So this is a time where we begin to answer questions. If you have questions, you can continue to post them in the chat. If you've asked your questions or don't have any questions, again, just stay mindful. Have a clear mind and try and make this a beneficial experience for yourself. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. Is there any difference between the technique of meditation taught in the at-home course and the one taught at the center, or is just the duration more in the latter? Uh, we, we do pay a little more attention in the intensive course. We don't expect as much from you in the at-home course, obviously, because you're only doing one to two hours a day for most people. Uh, but the basic technique is the same. And in fact, in some ways, we don't have to concern ourselves so much during the intensive course because of the work you have put in at the in-home course. And besides that, there is more to the intensive course. Besides what I just said, it does uh, have added exercises that we feel can only be accomplished at the center. And that after you've gone through all this all this stuff that you went through in the at-home course again so you work your way through that again on a more intensive basis and then after that there's more during a given sitting is it appropriate to change the primary object let's say from the in and out breath to vedanas if we can't focus on the mind, nor observe it with the initial primary object? Well, you shouldn't be focused on the mind or trying to observe it anyway. Uh, we focus on the, and we don't focus on the in and out breath either. We focus on the stomach. So I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to practice, but uh, that might be a good place to start. We have an at-home course if you want to learn the technique and you want to ask these sorts of questions. It's fine you're asking them here. It's great that you're asking them here, but... I don't know if you're even all that familiar with our practice, but um, we're not concerned with focusing on the mind or observing it. You're going to see how the mind works by focusing on the body. That's the cleverness of using the body as the object. Not that the body is anything special, but um, that it allows you to not just understand your mind, but ha have a better mind as a result. After practicing in the Goenka tradition since 2006, I started practicing in your Mahasi tradition a couple days ago. How long should I note an object? I find that a lot of objects arise simultaneously. Should I try to switch to a new one as it arises? Well, again, I don't know if you've read our booklet. It might offer some insight there. We have a frequently asked questions for any of these sorts of questions you might have. The good, really good questions, um, but the kind of questions that we get repeatedly um, so do look into those resources um, the the general rule of thumb is you stay with the i guess what they call the primary object but you when you're walking you stay with the foot when you're sitting you stay with the stomach rising and falling and then 
anytime anything else distracts you during walking only if it really distracts you but during sitting really if anything catches your attention then you note it and if it's the kind of thing that a you're going to cling to or b is likely to go away then you note it until it goes away and if it's if it's not either of those things if it's something that's just in the background and continuous you just note it for a while until you feel like your mind is ready to let go and then you go back to the stomach but there's no um hard and fast rule you know it's not a, it's not magic like there's some special way to do it that's going to be the right way to do it it's messy it's organic and it's you have to be practical you're trying to learn about how your how your mind works you're trying to learn about the body as well and then learn about reality so just play it by ear and be reasonable in, in these things but you do have to be vigilant with some things that are likely to either are, things that are unwholesome you really should stick with them or things that are likely to lead to unwholesomeness like pleasant feelings or unpleasant feelings those are things you really should be patient with and try to stay with so as to avoid um, or or to get in before this arises. As for things arising simultaneously, just pick which is the, whichever is the most prominent, the clearest. Again, no hard and fast rule, and don't worry too much about did I get the right one, did I get the wrong one. That's really not valuable. What, what will happen over time is you'll get a better sense and you'll get better at it. It's like uh, it's like a sport or something, where you don't have you can't say should I have dodged or should I have like in hockey should I have slap shot or should I have faked, you know, you'll you'll get a sense of those things like in any training in any skill, this is a skill and it's it's real it's not this isn't computers or something like like programming or there's not one hard and fast rule it's like the difference between studying how to shoot a gun and and going to war or that you know in war is very messy and ugly and 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 horrible and it's not like shooting a gun at a target yeah so theoretically it's very simple to explain how to practice but to actually practice uh, is obviously more challenging and messy and really requires you to just practice it so consider that the un the understanding of what to do and what to note and so on will mostly come as you continue to practice don't be too worried about am i doing it exactly right or so on get the general idea and be aware of what is actually going to be wrong like wrong practice is noting concepts the only way you can really go wrong is if you start noting like dog dog or or someone was noting a dirty, dirty. These are these are wrong practice, and it, it, it's 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 not so uncommon for this to happen. But that would where you'd be really going wrong. And as long as you're noting something in the present moment that's real, like you're actually experiencing, because you don't experience a dog, you experience like the sound of the dog barking, or maybe you see a dog, then it's seeing, right? Keep it on the experience, and you really can't go wrong. And as for which you should be focusing on, well, I've covered it. Try and always go back to the basic object of the stomach or the foot. But uh, do give things proper attention, reasonable attention. Should I note the stomach or the breath as my base object? 
answer that. But uh, didn't make it clear. You should read our booklet. And the should here is problematic because I don't know you, and I don't know what context you're you're asking that question in. Uh, if you're asking in the context of our tradition, of course, because you're asking me, I mean, my answer is going to be quite clear and and certain. I'm going to tell you to note the stomach, but that doesn't mean that everyone should. If you're practicing in another tradition, you really shouldn't, because you'll get in trouble with your teacher. <laughs> if if I mean, if it's a tradition that doesn't follow the stomach, you should follow them. But um, if you want to argue which is the best way, we can't really do that. I can just say that in our tradition, this is what we do. So do read our booklet. Any advice against short fixes, such as video games and pornography? Well, the sutta we studied this morning in the sutta study group, uh, Majima 149, actually a lot of the suttas we studied, but this one particularly was sort of pointed directly towards these sorts of desires. You really have to gain understanding. The Buddha says, reminds us that it's lack of understanding that leads you to cling and to crave and to want and to become addicted. So you have to understand, you have to understand the eye and, and vision. You have to understand the feelings that arise from the eye and vision. I mean, the eye and, and, and light. So when light touches the eye, there is pleasure uh, in what you see. For like pornography, there will be pleasure in what you see. And in video games, there will be pleasure in what you see and um, and pleasure in what you hear. And then there will be pleasure in the feeling. Uh, well, no, there won't be really tactile feelings. So I suppose with pornography, there is also the sexual act involved, and that's physical pleasure. But anyway, you note all of these things. You also note the mental um, and the ideas that bring pleasure, like video games can be cerebral, I think, and... So there's pleasure that comes from the mind door. So the six senses, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind, all of these six, you should uh, you should understand them. Majima Nikaya 149, probably really good for everyone to read. It's quite simple. It's deceptively simple, but read it because it outlines the Four Noble Truths in kind of a unique way and um, reminds us of the importance of tranquility and seeing clearly vipassamatha and vipassana um, so you kind of have to change your attitude mostly people are against these things and you're asking a question about how to how to how to succeed against these things and you shouldn't be against them you should be in favor of understanding them and understanding the video games and the pornography because both of those are innocent things. Video games are innocent. There's nothing wrong with video games. Pornography is also innocent. Hold on, before you you, you hate me for this or or or, or get this, I understand what I'm saying. Video games are physical. Computers are physical. It's just physical. Light is physical. Light is a part of the physical world. So when you light out of your monitor, that's you interacting with the computer, that's all physical. Pornography as well. The visions are physical. Even people involved are physical. You and your um, bodily reactions, those are physical. Uh, even the mental concepts, like concepts of video games, like how to play video games, how to be good at them, those are also innocent. 
and pornography. What do you, let's see, what you think about them, your, the ideas about certain types of sexual acts and so on. Um, all of those thoughts are also like recognition. When you recognize uh, a male body or a female body or the parts of the body and you recognize the interactions, like, oh, these two people are having sexual intercourse or so on. All of that is also innocent. The only problem is your reactions to these things. And of course, they're inevitable and they're unavoidable and they're why you should, as best you can, try to avoid these things because you're most likely uh, incapable of not reacting to them. But it's only the reactions, the liking, then the desire for these things that is problematic. And so if you can understand them, if you can be mindful when confronted with even the idea of these things, and, and of course, the actual engaging or, or getting involved in these things, then they become uh, innocent. They, they become innocuous. And you don't desire them. I mean, the, the point is you stop doing them because they are not only uh, useless, but also a waste of time and energy. And have, I mean, pornography, there's problematic aspects to it from a social, societal standpoint. Um, but you just lose, I mean, you become kind of disgusted by them. Sometimes I'm unclear if I'm noting reality or a concept. For instance, sound clearly seems like reality, but I'm unsure if pain is real or a concept. Uh huh. Well, reality is what you experience. So sound is is real, but pain is also real. Pain is a name of an experience. I mean, I, 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 I kind of, well, I don't really, but I can appreciate that that might be, for a beginner, confusing, though I think pretty quickly it'll become apparent. But it should become apparent if I ask you, can you differentiate between pain and pleasure? Is pain a different kind of experience from pleasure? That might not be clear in the beginning, but it should be pretty clear if you uh, persist in your practice. Pain is quite different from pleasure, and you should note that. So if you feel pleasure, you should note that. Or if you feel happy, you should note that. If you feel calm, you should note that as calm, calm. If you feel pain, you should, of course, note that. Sound. I don't usually recommend noting sound. It's fine, but it's a little cerebral, like it's a little intellectual. I would hearing. We just generally tell you to note hearing. Sound is, sound is fine as well. Okay. When I try noting things, I sometimes end up feeling egocentric, that it's all about me. How can the practice of noting be beneficial to others around me? You shouldn't worry about being beneficial to others. The unfortunate truth is that you can't benefit other people directly. You can only help them benefit themselves. If they don't engage their minds properly in, in relation to reality, then, then they suffer. They, they go in a bad way. But um, that being said, thereby the only way that you really can help people is to have the ability to, um, to teach, to guide. And the only way you can have that is by knowing, by understanding. 
So if you learn how to practice, I mean, it's pretty simple. This question is not, I mean, it's a common question, but it's, it's a bit disingenuous because if the practice is helpful, then you being good at the practice makes you able to share it with others. It's the only way other people could possibly benefit from it. If, on the other hand, the practice is not beneficial to you, well, that's a different thing, but it's a different problem entirely. But that's not your your question. You're, you don't seem to believe that it's not beneficial to you. So if it is beneficial to you, then... And, and more importantly, what may not be clear is that, from our perspective, it's the most beneficial thing for you. There's nothing that compares as far as benefiting the individual. So if that's the case, then what's the best thing you can give to someone else is an ability to practice. How can you give that to them if you hadn't practiced yourself? Thereby, if you don't practice, you actually can't give people the most helpful thing for them. Right? It depends on whether you understand this as being the most beneficial thing for oneself. And if it is, then, well, it's obviously what you should be doing even if you want to help others. Sometimes I see my own capacity to do evil deeds. It is unsettling. How can I overcome my capacity to do evil? Really the way, seeing your own capacity to do evil deeds uh, is really how it works. You see, I mean, it's obviously a little deeper than that, but it's basically you're on the right track there. The fact that you're seeing your own capacity to do evil deeds is a good sign, something that people don't often see in the way you phrase it. I mean, it does sound a little bit simple, like, of course, everyone sees evil people see their capacity and they like it. But it sounds like you're saying that you say it's unsettling. That's the key here, right? You are shaken up by reality. You're seeing that reality, to put words in your mouth, is impermanent suffering and non-self. You, you probably wouldn't have described it that way. But you're seeing that it's not under your control. You are not in charge. You are not deciding. You know, you never signed up for this. I never said, okay, I want to be an evil person and be really good at doing evil deeds. And so it's unsettling to realize that reality isn't under your control. Your mind isn't even under your control. and It's unwieldy. And you've gotten yourself in a bit of a pickle by engaging in evil deeds, you've become a person who has a great capacity to do evil deeds as a result of the accumulation of the habit. So that is the path. Seeing that is the path and appreciating that is the path. It's it's deceptive. We don't realize that. And that's why we ask questions like, how do I fix it? How do I change it? You don't. The path is not actively trying to change or fix. The path is trying to understand, trying to see. Because if you can shock the heck out of yourself, if you can really shock yourself and really bring down the uh, gravity of the situation to, to, to in, bring it into your awareness and really make yourself aware and help your, and, and cognizant of how problematic these things are and how the things that you get, you react to, the things that lead, that trigger evil how they're not worth getting triggered over. That's all you need to do. You've done, you've done the work that needs to be done. You never have to fix directly. All you have to do is see clearly. That's the magic and the greatness of mindfulness. Because these ideas, how to fix, how to uh, destroy, how to, how to change, how to avoid, they're all, they, there's no answer there. They're misguided.
How much practice would need to be done in a day and another other points that would be helpful to ensure the possibility of enlightenment in this lifetime? Okay, so there's no answer to that question. And why there isn't an answer to that question is because you are unique. And every, every person is at a, um, a different level. We don't even all start, we aren't all even born in this life on the same level. Let's put it that way. You're not even born equal. Some people are born with a lot of good qualities. That's something that is kind of misunderstood, not understood in modern society, right? We're told all men are equal. Wasn't there like Rousseau? Didn't Rousseau say all men are born equal? And he meant it in a specific context. I'm, I'm, I'm misquoting him, of course, but we have this kind of idea of, of us all being equal and we all have equal uh, capacities. And that's just not true at all. Some people are born wretched mentally like awful and and it's not to say they can't progress it's just to say it's going to be harder for them and most of us are born with a lot of challenges so you can estimate and you can say the average person but you can't quantify it in numbers but let's try i'll give you some ballpark figures okay so we estimate ballpark for the average person about a month of intensive practice to get some groundbreaking or earth-shattering some some fundamentally life-changing results from the practice so think about that the average of a month Mahasi Sayada said this and I agree with him wholeheartedly from 20 years of experience um, a month is a good average but that's a month of intensive practice so we're talking uh, minimum eight hours a day. I mean, you don't quantify the hours, but that's ballpark um, what people would be doing. If I only have time to do 10 to 15 minutes of sitting, is it advised to not take the touching points as an object and just do rising and sitting because I will not get to all of them in that short time? Yeah, if you're just doing that much, you could. I mean, to, though, to be honest, you can get through them. You should be able to get through them all in ten to in let's say fifteen minutes. You count how long it takes you to do one point. Okay, so fifteen minutes. Let's put aside ten minutes. That's a little short. So let's say fifteen minutes times sixty is one hundred and fifty times six is nine hundred minutes. I got that right. 900 minutes, how many minutes does it take? So divide that by 28 is about 30. That's 30 seconds per touching point, if I got the math right. Yeah, 15 minutes gives you about 30. I guess it was a lot easier than I made it to, out to be. So half a minute per point in 15 minutes. Rising, falling. Sitting, touching. That wasn't 30 seconds, right? Now, you're going to get distracted, but... Okay, that all being said, yes, it's fine. Especially if you're only doing that much per day. Just go back to rising, falling, sitting. It's fine. If you have time, you can...
can, if you're doing a little more per day, then you can go through all the points. But like when you're really distracted throughout your day, you might find that, oh, it's just too much. My mind isn't in the state. That's why we more gauge whether to do the points. Are you focused? Have you had a day of, of tranquility and focus? Or have you been scattered throughout the day and overwhelmed mentally and fatigued mentally? Then like all that work of doing the touching points is not even helpful, not fruitful. Better to settle a little bit, do something less intensive, doesn't require so much memory work, and rising, falling, sitting is fine. I am trying to minimize generating new sankharas, but during meditation a fear arises frequently for the fruits of past sankharas that I will have to suffer. How to come to terms with this? Uh, this sounds like a Goenka meditator. I'm sorry to target that tradition, but they do tend to use this word. It's the only tradition that I know that uses this word in such a way. So let's um, let's deco let's uh, dissect this. Let's talk about sankara. Sankara is a word that means formation, and it's a really it's the standard English translation and. Goenka doesn't translate it so much, so you hear Goenka meditators, I mean, as far as I know, you hear Goenka meditators just using this word, bare poly, but it means formation. And so sometimes it's used to refer to all arisen phenomena, sabe sankara anicca, which means all arisen phenomena are impermanent. So minimize generating new arisen phenomena doesn't really make any sense, right? That's not at all what we're trying to do. Sometimes it's used to refer to mental formations. Now, some mental formations are unwholesome, and those you should minimize for sure, but that's not all mental phenomena. I mean, sati is a sankara. So should you minimize generating new sati, mindfulness? Obviously not. Um, I mean, wisdom is... Wisdom, asamoha, is a sankara. Metta, kindness is a sankara, right? Oh, no, that's, that's a dosa that doesn't actually exist, but you get the idea. A lot of good things are also sankara. A third way that it's, um, that it's talked about, and that might be what they're referring to, it's, there's a word called abhisankara, where the Buddha says, avijapachaya sankara. That's probably what he's referring to. So ignorance leads to sankara. That's referring to karma. So let's be specific now. So maybe I've come to an understand, a better understanding of how this word is used. If this is what makes sense. So ignorance leads to sankharas. Then you kind of have your answer. It's not really sankharas that you have to minimize. During meditation, a fear arises frequently for the fruits of past sankharas. So I guess, yeah, that's what you mean is karma, that I will have to suffer. Well... But that's your answer, is that ignorance is the cause of those kinds of karmas. I mean, karma is what you're talking about. Abhisankara is the word. And so to get rid of ignorance, and fear is caused by ignorance, and your ignorance about your fear is causing more sankaras. I mean, fear itself as a sankara is, a, is, a, is karmically potent. Fear is based on patika, which is karmically potent.
So how do you deal with this as you come to understand and be familiar with these qualities? You become familiar with the other meaning of sankara, which is all arisen phenomena, and you understand that they arise and they cease, and even you yourself who will have to suffer is is an illusion that is only made up of sankaras, made up of risen phenomena. And when you see and understand that, then you get you stop forming new karma and stop giving rise to unwholesome sankaras as mental formations. So really confuse the issue about three different usages of the word sankara. I would just be careful using this word for that reason because I don't really know exactly which one you're talking about. Though now I think I get the. But let's be a little clearer and and use words that actually have better meaning, like karma. I don't want to generate new karma or new unwholesome clinging. Perhaps clinging is a good word. Right? The Buddha didn't use this kind of language, generating new sankharas. It's not how he spoke. Not usually, anyway. Ignorance and craving, those are the key aspects of paticca samupada, dependent origination. You overcome. And, and what we saw today, something very special that I pointed out, was that, you know how the Buddha says usually, like in, talking about the study group, Majjhima Nikaya 149, where the Buddha usually says the cause of suffering is tanha, craving or clinging. But today he said, in 149, he says ignorance and craving. So ignorance and tanha. So he points out that they're, they're he reminds us that they're both equally important, which is really, really valuable. To remember that it's not just about eradicating craving or suppressing it or something like that. You, no, you, you, it's ignorance that is the root cause. Avijja bhajaya sankara. Avijja is what you should be focusing on. That's your answer. Ignorance. When I feel angry, should I just note anger? Should I also note the other defilements as well? For example, agitating, disliking, etc.? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've read our booklet. It sounds like you haven't or haven't read it very well, but that's basically the answer. There's even Mahasi books that give you the same advice, so you don't have to read our booklet. You can read the books that Mahasi wrote on instructions on how to meditate. But if you're here, my recommendation is humbly read the book that I wrote. Right? Is anyone telling you to read their book? It's kind of suspect, so it doesn't have to be my book. You can read Mahasi's book, but you could also read mine. Maybe it's I don't think there's anything special about the book I wrote. It was just mostly trying to parrot back what I've learned, actually. The reason for writing the book is to have something in English that was basically what I was taught. And I tried my to word for word, base it on my teachers, and, well, not word for word, but as best I could get across the ideas that he taught. And, but yeah, I mean, this is simple advice, doesn't require anybody's specific book. That's how we practice. Agitating is, um, I mean, to nitpick, that's not quite accurate. I would say agitated, which is maybe what you mean. The problem is, like, if someone notes boring, agitating is a word that, and, and, you know, I don't know if this is exactly what I meant, it, but to nitpick, you can't say boring, because that means this thing is boring, and that's not real. It's not true. Nothing Like, like can, can reality ever be boring? No. Or boring. 
that's the reality of it. You're experiencing boredom. So you can either note bored or you can note bore, boredom, but you can never note boring. So agitating is also uh, not an experience, unless you are doing the agitating. If you notice that you are agitating, that's an odd word to use, but that would be the only case where you'd actually experience I'm agitating someone or agitating something. When I do sitting meditation, I keep getting a pleasurable feeling in my stomach and spreads to the rest of my body, so I stand up and move on to walking meditation. But when I sit back down, the feeling of bliss starts rising up again in a few minutes and gets overwhelming. How should I work around this? Because being mindful of the good feeling makes it stronger and harder to note and think. There's nothing wrong with that feeling. I mean, you should take that feeling as an object. So maybe you're trying to note something other than the good feeling. But you certainly should note the pleasurable feelings, even if it spreads. I'm not sure why you would stand up and move on. I mean, I guess I understand the 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 theory behind that, but it's not proper. It's not usually proper. You would note what you do is note the pleasurable feeling, and if you like, you would note liking. That's it. Just stay with it. Pleasurable feelings. I said earlier, they're an important one to stick with. So just keep noting it, even if it gets stronger, and be sure to note any liking that arises as well. But stay with the feeling until it goes away. Suffered physical pain today. And after such days when I sit for meditation, a fear arises frequently for more fruits of past sankharas that I will have to bear in the future. How to come to terms? Wait, isn't this the same question we already answered it, reformatted? Same question, Nirbhante. But isn't it the same question also? This notes uh, physical pain where the previous didn't. Other than that... Yeah, well... I'd say just read our booklet. I, I, it seems like the same question. I do not have very much intellectual knowledge of Buddhism and the suttas. Is my practice lacking by not studying very much? If I should study to support my practice, what do you suggest? Well, we have a study group every Saturday morning, which just ended... Uh, few hours ago, well, some, some hours ago, so you could look into that on our Discord server. We consider that to be adequate, you know, us meeting once a day, I would say, is adequate. Some, some people do a lot more study, and if you have time, you can certainly do more study. It should always be in, um, in proportion to the amount of practice you do. So if you're not practicing at all, and you really shouldn't study very much, a little bit more, so you, so you learn how important practice is. But if you're practicing a lot, you can also do more study. That's what I would say. Keep it proportionate to how much practice you're doing. And I guess the other thing is don't do them both together. So if you're really doing intensive practice, put aside your study. Once you finish your intensive practice, you can do a little bit of even somewhat intensive study where you study quite a bit. But then... You know, go back to your practice. You can do them in 
second them, but then you have to be careful. And during intensive course, you can't do any study. The study you should do is only the interviews with your teacher where you ask questions and they answer questions. And maybe some daily or weekly meditation talks from the teacher. We are advised to note hearing when hearing a dog barking, but in the case of sitting, which is a concept, we are advised to note sitting instead of feeling. Please help clear this confusion. Sitting is a thing. It's the feeling of sitting. It's a good point. I mean, it's it's been asked and answered. Uh, Mahasi Sayada talks about this. And it, it is kind of conceptual, but it's not. It's It's the feelings. The only reason you know that you're sitting is the feelings. So it's kind of like a conventional um, name for an ultimate reality. Names are all conventional. You call this sitting, you call this standing, but the what it gives you is an understanding that sitting is not the body sitting, it's actually just the feelings. Because the only way you're going to know that you're sitting is not because your body is sitting, but because you feel the parts of the body which you recognize as sitting. So it is connected with ultimate reality, even though it is just a name. Rising and falling are the same. The rise of the stomach is still just a feeling. But because they are names of specific feelings, they still help you uh, understand reality. Saying dog, dog doesn't do that. Dog is uh, cerebral. It's the idea that is triggered by the hearing, for example. Can you meditate too much? Um, yes, if you just mean by doing walking and sitting, it can certainly be too much. The only way that could happen is if you were not being the time. So you can't be too. You can't practice mindfulness too much. The Buddha said mindfulness is always valuable. Mindfulness is always valuable. But actual walking and sitting, if you're not being very mindful, too much is not going to be helpful. But it's, the mindfulness is a momentary thing, so there can never be too many moments of that. Is there a meditation technique to remember past lives? Uh, yes, there is a actual meditation technique to remember past lives. Does liberation you can find it in you can find it in the Visuddhimagga if you're interested? Does liberation happen only when one can be mindful at every moment during waking hours without discursive thoughts, or can it happen before? No, that's not going to be something like that. 
but not quite. I wouldn't worry too much about that. Um, kind of. I mean, it's going to take some fairly intensive effort, some intensive capacity. So you'll get to a state where you're pretty mindful, kind of pretty much at every moment. Um, without discursive thought, thought, yeah, pretty much. That's the state which does precede enlightenment. A little bit cautious in, in saying yes, just because it sounds daunting. It kind of sort of sneaks up on you as you practice intensively. You just get to the point where you're just surprised at how mindful you are. So I, I just want to I just want to to qualify it by saying that uh, it's not as impossible as it might seem, because it kind of snowballs. It 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 grows exponentially. You know, I think ex about exponents. It doesn't grow linear, lin linearly, which would which would take a lot longer. It snowballs. Okay, we've crossed the hour. There's one more question in the first tier. Do you have time to answer one more? Thank you. I can either follow the OCD mental ritual or use meditation as the ritual. It gets confusing and scary at times. I also noticed that food habits also impact the thoughts. How to make things less complex? Well, mindfulness should make things less complex, but you have to catch whatever it is that is triggering or involved in the OCD mental Mental ritual is your key, your clue there. What is going on in your mind? And that's what you have to learn to catch. The moments of thought, the moments of decision-making, deciding to engage in ritual again and again. You have to catch the feedback loop, and you have to note it. And you have to not try to fix it. So rather than trying to break yourself out of it or stop it from happening, just try and be mindful with it. The thing about an OCD mental ritual is that it actually could be a, quite a useful or valuable uh, opportunity to be mindful because it's ritual, because it's repetitive. And so all you need to break out of it is to apply mindfulness. Now, all you need, uh, it takes quite a bit to gain the skill of mindfulness, but it's not overwhelming or impossible. It's just a challenge. But a par big part of the challenge is not trying to fix or con control or... or break or something like that just try to understand try to be mindful and patient especially with um, you know it can be quite stressful so this the stressful um, mental qualities can prevent you from being mindful and you have to note them as well when you're stressed about it upset about it afraid or worried or anything like that you have to note all of that as well Gary you even say confused so let's turn that on its head and say things cannot be confusing or scary. And that's part of the problem that, that we see them in such a way. We see the situation in such a way. These things are confusing and scary. That's not true. You are confused and you are scared. Or even more accurately, confusion arises and fear arises. And you just see them as even impersonal realities. Confused, confused, or confusion, confusion afraid, afraid, or fear, fear. And that's it.
Just be patient with that. Don't try to fix it. Don't expect any results. Just try to watch and learn. And when you when you when you see when you when you watch, you'll see. When you see, you'll know. You'll understand. When you understand, you'll go. You'll be free. You'll say, "I'm free." That's it. Thank you, Bhante, for taking the extra time. That's all the questions we're prepared to ask today. Okay. Thank you all for your questions. Thank you, Chris and Edit, for your help. Of course. Have a good week, everyone. Thank you all. Sadhu. Uh,